Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Karate Kid, starring Ralph Macchio, Noriyuki Patmorita, Elizabeth Shue, Martin Cove, and William Zabka, directed by John G. Avildsen. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we're going to be closing yet another film cast. And this has been a real fun one. It's been a trip down memory lane, down summer box office lane. Uh, we've been calling this one the Summer Tenpole Hall of Fame. And I'm excited to be recording today. It's, it feels like a while since we last recorded, Matt, because we recorded Raiders a couple a couple days early than we typically do. So it's good to, good, good, good to see you again. And I'm excited to talk about The Karate Kid. This, is, this was a fun rewatch for myself. This whole cask has been filled with memories for me and great stories. And I like it when we go back and sort of live through the experience in the theater. Uh-huh. And this cask especially has taken me back to a place in my childhood that I hadn't visited in a while. Yeah, that, that's, one of, that's one of my favorite parts of talking about films is the person's experience watching it for the first time. Because you're in a certain element and whether the crowd was really involved in it or totally dead. I think it helps me remember when I saw films like... If it was a good experience, like seeing things is always a, a, a real fun thing for me to talk about. That is a, an Im- important part of film. There's mm-hmm. a, an emotion or a karma or an aura, an energy that goes through good audiences. Mm-hmm. And I think it happens. I mean, we've talked about in horror a lot where the audience is really important to your enjoyment of the film. Yes. Certainly in comedy, because I think the laughter is contagious. It also works well with drama, especially in movies that tend to have those sad moments. Because if you hear the sniffling from the person next to you, it kind of green lights you to be open enough to go through that as well. And if you think about it, that's the movie's intention. Mm -hmm. The movies we talk about tend to either be really, really well done or really, really not. We don't do a whole lot of middle ground, right? (laughs) Yeah. So that being said, the writer... And the production company and the director have an intention to draw an emotion from you. Definitely. And if you're in a good audience, that emotion sated with the other 200 people that you're in there with, mm-hmm. it, it creates a much better viewing. Like we go back to The Mist. Yeah. Right? So Great audience. Right. Yeah. She gets shot. Everybody yeah. cheers. Yeah. Uh, when we saw About Time, mm-hmm. like myself and Denise, mm-hmm. there was not a dry eye in that theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we saw paranormal activity there's different and those moments yeah they render the movie a place in a place that i recall with emotion not just story yeah and that's cool and that's a hard thing to replicate like at home and this whole cask has been that yeah that's great yeah excellent so today for on tap for uh drinks we have uh, some more of the grangestone the highland single malt scotch whiskey this is again total wines whiskey of the month um, from for the month of June. Wonder what they're gonna pull on us in July. We might have to dabble into that. You will have to try that one out. Yep. All right. Here you go. Bottoms up. Bottoms up. Remember, this one had a pretty unique smell to it and a nice, uh, interesting start. Mm-hmm. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Wax on, wax off. <laughs> Paint the fence. Mm-hmm. That's still terrific. Mm-hmm interesting uh textures and tastes in that well awesome well let's let's kind of get to it we have some viewer feedback this week uh, uh in response to um our john williams uh score question 
you know, shout out to Nathan, who I'm just going to read the responses verbatim. He says, John Williams is truly a master and it's hard to pin down his top three. He favors Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, followed by The Patriot. I totally forgot he scored that film. That's and, such um, a terrible film. Though. Yeah. But pretty, pretty good music in it, now that I remember it, and uh, Jurassic Park. He also said he's a big fan of the Cowboys like Matt. He says, you know, he's got a pretty uh, good uh, John Wayne fanaticism. But anything that he does becomes iconic, synonymous with the license he's working with. Star Wars, Superman, Harry Potter. He calls him the Ennio of the summer blockbuster. So the Ennio Morricone, another legendary film composer. Yeah. Then also shout out to Brett. He says Star Wars is definitely number one. Empire Strikes Back specifically. Pretty much all of the reasons you all discussed on the podcast. Number two for me is Jurassic Park. The whole premise of seeing live dinosaurs is mind-blowing itself, but the emotions the music makes you feel throughout the film, from amazement to fear to everything in between, makes the film iconic. Finally, number three would be E.T. It just complements the film so well, and an honorable mention to Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I think that those are all those are all great, great responses. I think they described why they picked them very well, too. So thank you. Thank you, Brett and Nate. Uh, turning into some uh, very avid fans. They they commented on some other thing we read a couple weeks ago, too. So thank you. Thanks, guys. We appreciate the feedback. So we have a very interesting flight today, you know, kind of talking about uh, the summer box office and the current state of the summer box office for 2019. You know, this was something Matt and I feared, and it's actually happening. It's very mm-hmm. lukewarm summer. Like, I'm ready to rank this in the bottom two or three of all-time worst summers because other than, like, Rocketman and, and John Wick 3, like, what else has really stood out and or what is not bombing week after week? I guess the saving grace is Spider-Man Far From Home this week. We could hope, yes. And then after that... I mean, we'll have Lion King. But again, it's it's the quality aspect. I don't think Men in Black International... Oh, that, Dark, that tank. D- Dark Phoenix, even Godzilla to an extent, Aladdin. I mean, the quality just isn't there. They're, they're, they all look like assembly line blockbusters. Exactly. That's exactly the point I was just going to make. Mm-hmm. They're just checking boxes yes. so that it's palatable by a large number of people. Mm-hmm. And you're getting, like you said, cookie cutter, formulaic, rolled out in assembly line manner sort of films. That's just bullshit. How in the hell? <laughs> I, we've talked about this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> How did Godzilla miss again? Yeah. Not a complete miss. This wasn't taking one right up the pipe on strike three, but like, well, well, I got how it. did it miss again? So the first Godzilla film, the Cranston one, grossed, I think, like 214 million domestically. This one has barely crossed 100 million domestically. That summer was also really bad. If mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken, the saving grace that summer might have been Inception. And short of that, oh, that no, was not a, that year. That, that was the Guardians summer. Okay, so that that was the one. The the, the Inception s- summer was also pretty terrible. Fucking terrible. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a period of three months, mm-hmm. essentially twelve weeks, yes. where you have twelve release dates. Yes, and you maybe get one or two palatable films. Yeah, and I'm letting everybody know, Dark Phoenix. Yeah. As hard as we were on Serenity. Yeah, Dark Phoenix rivals serenity oh. as far as oh boy. the abysmal nature of that <laughs> i haven't seen it yet so. oh my you have to see it just uh, because it's so terrible i have to watch the train wreck unfold we saw toy story 4 okay uh that was probably one of the better mm-hmm. films but my winner so far this summer mm-hmm. has to be parabellum yeah john wick 3 that's that's the for me that's the best film Excellent. this summer and i really like rocket man too uh, you know experimental biopic if you will 
again, I don't know why that film's coming out in the summer. That's more of like a November release, but sure. but still, it's uh, that's my, I'm hanging my hat on that because everything else is just totally disappointing me. Well, look that we're moving into with the success mm-hmm. of the Queen Bohemian Rhapsody, yes. and now this we're moving into the copycat industry of Hollywood, which Definitely. will be rock opics. Yep, and here they come. Yep. So who's next? We're gonna get Van Halen. I actually think the David Bowie one's in the work currently. Of course so. it is. I think that one will be next. I know you'll be there for Van Halen opening night. Oh, he- oh hell no. Oh, hell no. You want the talking heads? Yes, I do. I that, would, that would be pretty good, actually. It sure, especially if David Byrne directed it. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. So our flight question, we're looking back at the 1980s and the summer box office champs of the 80s from 1980 to 1989. So here's the rules. The film had to have come out in either May, June, July or August of its respective year, and it had to be the highest-grossing film in that summer movie season. So here's the entries on this list. From 1980, we have The Empire Strikes Back. From 81, Raiders of the Lost Ark. From 82, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. 83... (laughs) Extraterrestrial. Yeah, the... 83, Return of the Jedi. 84, Ghostbusters. 85, Back to the Future. 86, Top Gun. 87, Beverly Hills Cop 2. (laughs) 2. Yeah. 88, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and 89, Batman. So this is what we're going to do. Matt and I are going to sit here together and work collectively to come up with a definitive top 10 ranking of these films based on quality. Not their importance in their box office earnings, because at the end of the day, the money doesn't really matter. Which of these films is truly the best? And I think this is going to be a little difficult, to say the least. Well, 10's not, though. Ten, 10's a slam dunk. I'm not going to let you put Batman at 10. Oh, no, of course. No, no. <laughs> I was, uh, come on, no way. It's Beverly Hills Cop 2. I was going to say that. That's I don't. Ten. It's not even the best film in that franchise. And honestly, I can't even barely remember anything about Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yeah, no. That's, yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's easy. Okay. Uh, and then here, here's this interesting. I don't, a, I don't know. One I, thing before, like, go ahead. What shocks me about that mm-hmm. is in that list. That's because Eddie Murphy's at the height of his power in that De- decade. Definitely. That's Eddie Murphy's mm-hmm. stake in the '80s for summer. That's crazy. Well, for summer blockbusters, I know. Again, but, in '84, Beverly Hills Cop is the biggest earning movie of '84, but that film came out in December. That's just crazy to me. Totally nuts. Not a lot of action though with him. I mean, mm-hmm. that's com- yeah. So maybe not more comedy action. Yeah. So I might be a little controversial here with what maybe I want to put up here at number nine, but honestly, I could totally put Return of the Jedi up here at the at the tippy top. You could make an argument that Return of the Jedi is on the bottom tier of Star Wars films. <sighs> so let me ask you a question. Go ahead. I, yeah, no argument for me on that. Mm-hmm. Two thirds of that movie's good though. Yeah, that movie doesn't fall apart until we get teddy bears. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Yeah. Okay. I also feel just anytime I watch it, man, Jabba's Palace rescue of Solo just takes fucking forever. Okay. Fair. So here's where I would go with this. Okay. It is that movie less impactful than Roger Rabbit? Yeah, that's where I can go to. Like, I can also kind of very. Very literally palette who framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, one, I think it's a unique concept, the live action with the animation, but I could totally put that one here. So you want to go nine there? Yes. Okay. Okay. I think we might have consensus then on number eight. E.T.? Or, ret- <laughs> or Return of the Jedi. Return to, well, okay. It's between those two. Mm-hmm. Staying mm. power. Sure. Which one's more watchable today? 
it's Jedi's. It, that's a, a more watchable film than the the extraterrestrial. Yeah, than E.T. the extraterrestrial. Interest, interesting. E.T. at eight. We'll do E.T. at eight. Return at seven. At seven. Got it. I have a really hard time watching Return of the Jedi, though. I'm just saying that right now, and maybe we're gonna tackle that film down the road. But for its conclusion, it could never live up to the monumental revelation that was Empire Strikes Back. It's oh, impossible. Right. I well, mean, as a kid, you when you went to see it, you were probably like pretty satisfied, but you were probably like maybe left wanting a little bit more with Return. I just think there was a finality to that movie mm-hmm. at that time that left me, like you said, unsated or wanting more. Yeah. And I got to be honest with you, yeah. it's a bit in gameish. Sure. Oh, definitely. I, I think, think we there's talked, a corollary. We definitely those talked two. about that a couple times. Okay, six, huh? So, six. These are tough now. Now here we go. Here, here's what I'm kind of seeing, kind of sneaking here. Either Top Gun or Batman from '89. You know, Batman was an interesting film, kind of capped off the end of the '80s, and you know, kind of controversial in its own right with its own casting. It it was the biggest opening weekend of of its time when 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 it released. But would you rather watch Top Gun or would you rather watch Batman? Man, that's a good question. I'd rather watch today's versions of Batman than Definitely. Top Gun, but I'd rather watch Top Gun from then than Batman, especially the volleyball scene. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, um, I really love I, I Top Gun's a bit of a guilty pleasure. Oh, wait a minute. Are, is this really happening? Are you about to put Batman before Top Gun on this list? I can I can I can do that on in context of this list. Wow. Cuz truth be told if you're ranking the batman film this isn't even the best batman film. oh no, no there's no, a few there's quite a few that come before it that's but, a seminal film for you but think of the context of the 1980s and just the the zeitgeist of top gun danger zone and every breath you take and you've lost that loving feeling that music that love st- and it had everything not to every breath you take take yeah. my breath take away. my breath away yeah thank berlin you berlin versus thank, the police thank you for that correction but it had a little bit for everybody it was a it was a it was a dude's fighter pilot movie but it also had this sappy love story in it so let me ask you a question go ahead the experience that you had with with batman in your entry that just wasn't you though mm-hmm. that was a whole lot of people that were around the same time frame oh, yeah. as you. Mm-hmm. If Batman isn't made, mm-hmm. that Batman isn't made, then obviously we never get the following sequential Batman sure, entries. Sure. But I think the superhero franchise is effectively dead. So maybe important for you know what comes what comes later, setting the groundwork. Because if you think about it, the final Tim Burton Batman installment, yes, Bat Nipples. What was that one? Oh no, that was Joel Schumacher. Schumacher Batman sorry. and Robin, a uh, train wreck. <laughs> it it did kill superheroes, if I'm not mistaken, yes. with mm-hmm. other a couple knockoff non mm-hmm. in canon for DC or Marvel entries yeah. until Blade. It was about two or three years pre Blade. Yeah, I, it's weird to talk about a two or three year period without so what, superhero what, yeah. films. So what do we want to do? Do we want to do Top Gun before Batman? You know, kind of putting all that into context. Yeah. Okay, Top Gun. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to the top ten. So at ten we have Beverly Hills Cop two, nine is Roger Rabbit, eight is E. T. Seven Return of the Jedi, six Top Gun, and five Batman. Okay. Okay, so top four. This is gonna be the hard part. No so joke. Here's what we have left. We have Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, Empire Strikes Back, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know what my number four is, but so I'm gonna go with Ghostbusters. And, you know, and I think I probably would too. Okay. The film's below that the top three are 
there's going to be something to talk about here coming up and yeah when we did the cat or the, the podcast on ghostbusters mm-hmm. what three weeks ago yeah i sat down and that was a real like i talked about it again it's a tough watch for me definitely uh it but it does have a state man i'm almost wondering now if that's too low for me yeah we could do that all day okay ghostbusters <laughs> is four all right <laughs> okay the top three top three let me just say this right now. I think, you know, looking at Back to the Future and its place in 1985, it's in the middle of the 80s. It, it totally kind of encapsulates, like, it's not quite 70s. It's not quite 90s. It's like the perfect 80s film. From a story about the 1950s. And for a story about the 50s, but another high-concept time travel, infinitely rewatchable. And to that, okay, oh so you hit the, you just briefly mentioned it there. Yes. They tackle time travel and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It they may- don't fuck it up or dick around with ridiculous pair, pair dimensions. Yeah. Like the butterfly effect. They handle it's real it simple. Very if, simply. If Marty doesn't get his parents together, he ceases to exist. Perfect. Exactly. That's it. Huge consequences. <laughs> it's a huge consequence. Right. I really love Back to the Future. Um, not so much the sequels, but that first film. The Huey Lewis songs, Power of Love, Back in Time. Okay, I can give you that at three. All right, here. This one's tough. Okay. Now, last week we talked all about Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, and how incredible it was. But is it more incredible than the seminal Star Wars vehicle that is Empire Strikes Back? Okay, so what's interesting is... The antagonist in both is played by the same guy. Mm-hmm. So just oh, in a the, moment, the protag, protag, yeah. say antag, yeah, protag. Mm-hmm. Harrison Ford to him, yes, man made the decade. Yeah, and the George Lucas. This is all kind of like brain children of him to to an extent. It's interesting if I'm looking at like my top ten, definitely like Raiders and Empire are definitely floating around in there at, okay. at various times. I'm gonna say Empire at two, and I'm gonna say Empire at two because. It wasn't the initial entry into the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Now, if we compare the trilogy of Star Wars 4, 5, and 6 and Indiana Jones through Last Crusade, <clears throat> yeah. that's a different argument. Sure. I think entry into the trilogy and interest in the movie per origin story is important. Mm-hmm. Empire Strikes Back is great, mm-hmm. but it's great because Star Wars did a pretty damn good job yeah. of making it great. One of the things I think Empire did that like future sequels would some would catch on to was how you can take the stakes of the first film and totally raise it to the next level, but also make a better film. You know, we had sequels like Jaws 2 and Superman 2, and those those are okay, but they're not they're not rivaling their initial entries. This one totally gives New Hope. It, it's better than New Hope. It totally is. Right. It's better than New Hope. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree. But it also had the legacy of new hope to prop sure. it up so for that i'm gonna say and mm-hmm. this is oh, debatable yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. i'm gonna say for me empire at two okay. Indy at one with but the, that's with, with the argument for Indy being you know prime originality original character so original i mean if you go back to mm-hmm. new hope it's ripped off from kurosawa mm-hmm. hidden fortress it's ripped off from hidden fortress mm-hmm. So it's not an original entry. Now, that doesn't mean that it's bad or George Lucas is a thief. I'm not saying that. But Indiana Jones, you could make the case that it's sort of the derivation yeah. of episodic radio, maybe, or adventure. 
uh, swashbuckling, but not on script and certainly not on screen. Definitely. Think of Indy's what? Um, 80. 80, 81. Prior to 1980. Yeah. Think of that big monumental blockbuster that, mm. right, there isn't. Mm-mm. It's so for me, mm-hmm. and it's close. Yeah. No, this is, yeah. It, I think we'll put Empire at two and Indy Raider, at one. Raiders at one. Yeah. But it's like by the hair of Indy's chinny chin chin, like. It's, it's real close. Now, understand, everybody, this is not what our preference is. It's mm-hmm. with the rules that it had to have won the summer mm-hmm. per revenue. Mm-hmm. There's other ones we could put in here. Jesse would probably put in Blade Runner. Actually, what's that, 79? <laughs> That'd be the, like, the bomb of the 82. <laughs> 82. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So forgettable. Okay. Um, do you, see, you know what I mean? Definitely. So that, with the rules in play. Mm-hmm. This I is think... what we have. So let's read it off. The ranking of the summer box office of 19, of the 1980s. At number 10, we have Beverly Hills Cop 2. At number 9, we have Roger Rabbit. At number 8, we have E.T. the Extraterrestrial. <laughs> At number 7, we have Return of the Jedi. At 6, Batman. At 5, Top Gun. 4, Ghostbusters. 3, Back to the Future. Two, the Empire Strikes Back, and number one, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's a pretty good list. <laughs> Look at that list of summer films. Yeah. And compare any of those, save Beverly Hills Cop 2, mm-hmm. to what's come out this summer. Oh, no. It's... Like Roger Rabbit's 9, It it's better than John Wick. <laughs> You'd rather see a Roger Rabbit than some of the shit I coming out. I don't know if I'd rather see it than John Wick, but it's close. I mean... You know, better than like Godzilla or some of these other other entries coming out. But yeah, that's the Legends. Legend, like doesn't even count stuff that was big hits like the Karate Kid. I think Karate Kid came in at like number four or five in 1984. Still a big hit. Yeah. But you're not even including a lot of those films. This was, this was fun. We might have to do this maybe for the 90s and the 2000s. With the exception of Ghostbusters. Yeah. I'm sorry, not Ghostbusters. Batman. Mm-hmm. All of those films are specs, too. Yep. Originally written for the screen. Not mm-hmm. adapted material. Mm-hmm. Hollywood, like we've talked about, yeah. didn't say we have to have a built-in audience to make this movie. They just said, we've got a really good idea. Let's tell an awesome story. Yep. And lo and behold, if you take a chance... Guess what you get to taking a chance. To taking a chance, you might end up on this list. Amen. Amen to that. All right, Matt, are you ready? It's been a cruel, cruel summer for us at the movies. It's about to be a cruel, cruel summer for Mr. Daniel LaRusso. So let's just don't leave him there on his own. Let's go. Like here we go. Here's our breakdown review of the Karate Kid. starts out with our opening scene going back to our screenwriting terms of Daniel LaRusso and his mother uh, leaving New Jersey to move for Los Angeles and you know we kind of don't know why they're leaving but you know they're, they're, they're leaving you know a past behind to have this kind of new beginnings and a very humbleish and they don't come from a lot of money. They're staying at this kind of rinky-dink uh, apartment in Los Angeles. Reseda. Reseda, yeah. <clears throat> and one of the first things I like to kind of point out, this has always cracked me up, was when he kicks open the door and he like busts his friend. This is uh, Freddy Fernandez, 
Say hi to Freddy Fernandez because he's going to disappear for the rest of the movie. Don't see him again. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Isn't like they entered and you kind of the way movies are set up, your expectation is, oh, that's going to be like his pal, his, <laughs> his, his running mate, his sidekick. <laughs> nope. No, like after the beach bit, you don't see Freddy for the rest of the film, which I think is just hilarious. But yeah, I think we, we get a lot set up here. In this this little opening bit at this apartment, you know, the things aren't quite, everything's breaking down. He's trying to make friends, trying to find a place for himself, you know, looking at, you know, possibly taking karate and this and that. And we have uh, Mr. Miyagi is actually kind of the landlord of this building. He'll come and fix anything that needs fixing. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about... uh, Nuriyuki Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi. I think this is an amazing performance, but also a really great character, as we're going to find out as the film progresses. You know, Matt, you and I like to talk about the Rocky films, you know, how legendary that series is, and it does not get its due no. at all. No. But, you know, Rocky has a very crass and intense trainer in those films, uh, Mickey Abbott. Burgess play, Meredith. Played yeah. by Burgess Meredith. Brilliantly played by Burgess Meredith. Mm-hmm. The Elizabethan, like Shakespearean trained Globe actor. Yes. Burgess Meredith. Crazy, yeah. right? Exactly. I know. Yeah. And he's very intense, you know, to the point where like, women weaken legs and <laughs> you're going to eat lightning and crap. Th- like he's really intense. You're going to eat lightning and crap thunder. He's really intense with how he trains Rocky. I think we get the polar opposite of that with Miyagi. I think we get a man who's very patient yeah. In his trainings, and he's going to teach Daniel karate later in the film in some pretty unique ways. But I think at the end of the day, it's patience. And it's that kind of that Japanese culture that he brings into it. And I think that's where they make a very unique connection in this film. Going back to first viewings, mm-hmm. I had an introduction to Pat Morita, but it was through Happy Days. Happy Days, he was Arnold. Right. Yeah, the first Arnold. The crazy cook chef guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and here he shows up in this film in a much better role i might add mm-hmm. and as far as mentorship roles go in film you can go one of two ways yes you can take the really bad mentorship role like the jason bateman bad words mm-hmm. dirt bad santa kind of um or bad news bears toxic relationship even like terence fletcher and whiplash okay so you can have that one or you can have the one that actually takes the protege under their wing and attempts to sculpt them in their own image. Mm-hmm. And I think this does it really well. And it does it really well in Pat Morita's as Mr. Miyagi's ability to just persevere. Yeah. I think for a society right now that sometimes is called snowflakey and sometimes needs to be pretty soft. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of actual lessons Mm -hmm. that he gives LaRusso in this movie that are still applicable today. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not about why. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I know better. And if you'll just get on board and ride with me when it's over, I promise you'll be okay. And this movie does that so well. From the beginning, doesn't he teach him how to punch right away? Like, show him your punches. Like, mm-hmm. you want to twit, kind of teaches him a better way to punch. Well, it's interesting the way it unfolds, too, is just because, you know, after Daniel gets his ass kicked, which will let's come back to that, but he kind of sees him practicing karate on his own yeah. with that book as he comes to fix the sink. One, and, two, mm-hmm. three, right. And he, it's kind of slowly he's going to start teaching him. And, you know, when, when he does teach Daniel karate, he thinks he's going to be learning like, and all the moves and stuff and no it's actually more like through chore work is how he's gonna learn how to like yeah take down the cobra kai yeah 
waxing, but, painting, yeah. sanding. But let's let's kind of get right to it with with Daniel Larusso. Could okay. have been Robert Downey Jr., Charlie Sheen, Emilio, Nicolas Cage, Anthony Edwards, or Eric Stoltz. You plug in any nineteen eighties actor into this role. Eric Stoltz. Huh? Yeah. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, interesting. But you know, Ralph Macchio plays a pretty well. I always kind of associate yeah. him with this film and just kind of his like very slender frame. Like he almost looks like if you like push him over, he'll just shatter. Right. <laughs> he does. Yes, he does. But I think he has a nice humility. I think he's a very likable protagonist, For which sure. is something that I think just epitomizes the 1980s. Looking back at Ghostbusters and Jaws and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think we've had a lot of protags that we can get behind and really care about whether they see things through in the end in Act 3. What's really interesting about that, too, is at that time in popular fiction, mm-hmm. the counterculture or the hero with feet of clay, the Frank Miller, Batman, that sort of character was really popular in, in literature, mm-hmm. whereas this character really played out in sort of the heroic truth, justice in the American star-spangled way. Yes. Literally, Rocky in star-spangled pants mm-hmm. on film. And... In Reagan's America in the mid-80s, early to mid-80s, I think that played well on screen. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, though, in fiction, because that's going to be the 90s, how once that stuff got adapted and then transmitted to or uh, translated to the silver screen, how those guys went away. Mm -hmm. The, the, The atypical big muscles... Do right by society. Do right by your woman. Mm-hmm. That kind of goes away. Mm-hmm. But what you mentioned is really key. Daniel LaRusso has a characteristic, I think, that plays out well in this film, which is the everyman characteristic. Yeah. He's just a kid. A kid who gets his ass kicked. A kid from very mediocre beginnings. Mm-hmm. Modest. Uh, hardworking. Single mom. And you know what that does? Buy in. Yeah. You buy in. A sense of humility. Exactly. Yeah. So we get right to that, to what we could call maybe our inciting incident of the film, which yeah. is Freddie Fernandez, his best friend ever, has invited him to hang out at the beach for a day, play soccer and just kind of chill and hang out. And this is where he meets his uh, kind of, you know, female counterpart, uh, Allie, played by Elizabeth Shue, who looks like she's like 27 in this film. <laughs> yeah. But she had a bit of a run in the 80s, too, you know, Adventures in Babysitting and this. And I think she was in Back to the Future Part 2. I think she played the Marty's girlfriend in that. Like. And she's still got plenty of TV stuff going right now, too. Yeah. And I think quite possibly, fingers crossed, yeah. we'll get to this. Yeah. Maybe a really big role coming in a show directly tied to this yeah. in the not-too-distant future. But she's awesome. Like, like She's awesome. I think she's a, like a very – she's likable, too. Like, yeah. And she comes from – she's this opposite end of the spectrum for Daniel LaRusso. Has a lot of money. Has all these expectations. Parents want her to date you know, people of that certain class. But she's not into that. She's taking a liking to Daniel because she likes him for kind of who he is, which – you just want to like her too at the same time, sure, and when they sure. and when they kind of don't work and kind of fall apart, it kind of it kind of hurts you a little bit. Yeah. But oh boy, here comes our in, our our one of our antagonists of the film to set off the inciting incident, Mr. William Zabka, Mr. Johnny Lawrence. Let's just call him King Douche of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. That never forget that bleached hair that he, that blonde bleached hair that he has. It yep. just screamed, just like hate me, just hate me. <laughs> But him and Allie have had some type of dating past, and she wants none of it anymore. So Daniel steps in when the radio's broken. 
Johnny Lawrence just hands him his ass. Oh, and man. get used to it Kicks because it. I wrote a note here. Daniel takes such a beating through this whole film. And it, and it kind of he's got like black eyes and bandages throughout the entire throughout the entire movie. But this is really going to set the movie on its course. Here's our inciting incident, this kind of almost call to action um, kind of uh, moment for us is getting your ass kicked in front of this girl that you're taking a liking to. I got to do something about this. I'm going to learn karate. I'm going to teach myself how to do it. I think we're kind of going on the path of the what our film's going to take. There has to be some element of our protagonist not being able to overcome the antagonist. Mm-hmm. And early on in this film, no way Daniel is any match for Johnny. Mm-hmm. And the ch- the path that he takes to be the foil for Johnny is through the same device that Johnny uses. Matter of fact, coming up here pretty shortly, he shows up at Johnny's karate studio. Mm-hmm. John Kreese is the sensei that runs it. It's called Cobra Kai. Mm-hmm. And as he walks in, he sees them all clad in black badass. Mm-hmm. Strike hard, strike fast, no mercy. Body bags. Mm-hmm. And Lawrence almost laughs at him as he... I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. Johnny Lawrence almost laughs at him as he walks in. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, he does laugh at him. And you realize, man, this kid is literally on his own. Mm-hmm. After he gets his ass kicked, sure, let's go learn how to defend myself. The problem is I'm going to go learn how to defend myself mm-hmm. at the home of the guy who just kicked the hell out of me. Yeah. So he's isolated, way undermanned, way out talented. It looks like a really bad start. And as a matter of fact, at one point in the film, he wants to go back. To New Jersey, to New Jersey, because yeah. things are so bad for him. Well, I think we again talking about the rule of three, setting something up three times to make it really pay off. I think we get three beatings of Daniel. We get this beach beating, and then you know later the next day at, at, at school, oh yeah, we get uh, the they're playing soccer and they start rummaging about. And again, "Cruel Cruel Summer" by Bananarama. I hate this song in like any other context. I love its use in this movie. Yeah. It just really kind of sets the tone. But he's pissed there. He's like, I hate this school. I hate this place. And then again, when he's on his bike and they kind of send him careening down the the the, the hill, busts his bike up. And I think that's when he says, I want to move back to Jersey. I hate California. I hate this shit. Uh, who could blame him? Yeah, I'd want to leave too. They live in the Chantate apartment. Yes. He's got no friends because he hasn't seen that friend since the first yeah, scene. Yeah, Freddie Fernandez has bailed on him. He's gone. Can't get the girl. Mm-hmm. Getting his ass kicked every day. Again, what you do is you create a nice relationship with him where you feel a little bit of empathy. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is they don't make him such a pussy that you like don't care. Yes. Right? They don't take him to the point where he just seems like a whiny baby. Mm-hmm. He's putting up a fight. He's just really, really undermanned. And then he's finally befriended by Miyagi. Mm-hmm. When Miyagi takes his bike out of the trash and fixes it for him. Fixes it for him. And then through maybe one of his first lessons, gets kind of that lesson in patience of how to properly trim bonsai, bonsai trees. trees. Yeah. Pain does not exist in this dojo. Does it? No, sensei. Defeat does not exist in this dojo. Does it? No, sensei. Prepare. Eight. What do we study here? The way of the sir. And what is that way? So this clipping of the bonsai trees is actually a very formative practice that Miyagi's been doing for X amount of years, kind of a, a very zen quality that 
he likes to do. And, you know, in teaching Daniel, I think he's teaching Daniel the very first uh, moments of patience of you can't just rush into this. It has to be done very intricately. And Daniel's willing to listen and take this advice. So, you know, it's it's all the, this 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 partnership or this relationship between the two is a very father son type of dynamic, which we get a lot more information about um, coming up in the film. But I think we're setting the film on some nice legs. You know, again, talking about Daniel getting his ass kicked and it's just it's, they're just pummeling him into the ground. He wants to leave. Here's this first shreds of a true friend. Forget Freddie Fernandez. He's he's gone. Miyagi's here to be, you know, Daniel's best friend. And, and as Daniel tells him later in the film, he says, you know, you're the best friend I've ever had. That's like that's a good moment. And we're, we're building up to that. And this is the first parts of that. Just the repairing the bike and giving it back to him mm-hmm. is such a sweet moment. And it also gives Miyagi a bit of an omniscient presence. He just sort of knows what's going on. And I think Daniel finds a little bit of security uh, maybe sanctuary in him too in that maybe there's someone on his side mm-hmm. he's just a little quiet and unassuming because he's just the maintenance guy at these apartments and so it would be easy for him to disregard him much the same way i think that that high school and everyone around daniel has disregarded him mm-hmm. it's a sim sympathy uh, Sympatico relationship insofar as both of those guys are kind of lonely and we're going to find out more about Miyagi and why he's so lonely mm-hmm. and needy and we watch the budding of a fantastic bromance on screen yeah, definitely yeah. definitely yeah uh in between all this you know yeah we've been introduced to Cobra Kai mm-hmm. and 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 Crease and Johnny Lawrence and the rest of the Cobra Kai cronies and one of the things that's always stuck out to me is the that red leather jacket that uh, Johnny Lawrence wears. I want that red jacket. It, that's awesome. I would totally wear that thing. The knockoff Michael Jackson George with the Cobra Kai from with the Co- yeah, yeah with the Cobra Kai patch on there. It's awesome. I love it. And uh, what's so great about him too <clears throat> is Johnny Lawrence in this movie is all about the pop iconic moments of the 1980s mm-hmm. and not to forecast this too much, mm-hmm. but it's also what's done really well in Cobra Kai mm-hmm. as, as the story progresses and it becomes into what it is episodic TV. Yes. He doesn't leave that in the series now and he's okay in that space and he sort of revels in it and it works in spades. Everything that everyone claims stranger things does on stranger things mm-hmm. and Netflix that leaves me kind of cold yeah. is what Cobra Kai does. Okay. Uh, in the same sort of 80s nostalgia way. Excellent. No, but yeah, you're right. Like at this point, from the red jacket yeah. to the fucking headband. His hair. <laughs> his hair. He's 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 really, I'm going to say this, yeah. maybe one of the five most dislikable guys yeah. in the entire decade. Oh, definitely. Right? Yo, oh, yeah. Almost played by uh, Crispin Glover. That would have been pretty interesting. <laughs> he's, I'm glad that that didn't happen. Like, he's just, he's more odd than like hateable. Like, I think he brings yeah. this kind of presence that you're just like, the second he shows up on his little dirt bike, <laughs> whatever motorcycle Crispin thing. Crispin Glover, the Peter Laurie of the 1980s. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. You just you just grow to hate Johnny Lawrence's character. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we're, we're treated to, and Matt, I had to make a little note about this as well, because it's Halloween. Yeah. They're having this little dance, and before he goes, he's kind of hanging out with Miyagi. He doesn't have plans to go, and Miyagi makes him a very cool shower very cool costume i, so I think awesome. i want to do that for halloween one of these years hell yeah but daniel daniel larusso is wearing 
uh, uh, San Diego Chargers uniform. What is that? Is that Wes Chandler in 89? Okay, so that's the first signed Charger piece of memorabilia that I ever have. Oh, okay. The, the West Chandler. So real quick, yeah, Matt's a very avid San Diego Charger, now Los Angeles Charger fan. That's the guy yeah. that turned me on to the Chargers. That's awesome. 1981, the playoff game against the Dolphins is where it started for me. And then as little coverage as we got a couple times a year when they played the Broncos and then whatever maybe network game they might have just mm-hmm. sort of in passing. Yes. That Air Coriel period... Bouts to Chandler time and time again. Lionel Little Chain, Lionel Little Train James, Chuck mm-hmm. Muncie when he wasn't strung out on drugs. Yes, yeah, dude. But Wes Chandler was legit. Mm-hmm. John Jefferson had left. Yeah, they had to sell Charlie Joyner, who's going to be at the time the greatest receiver of all time. Yeah, and Wes Chandler was a reject from the Saints. Oh wow! And they got him to replace John Jefferson. Mm. And that him and Fouts were magic. And yeah, that's also why I love that movie. Go back to what we said earlier. Mm-hmm. You watch movies and it takes you back to his place. Yeah. Rewatching this, I'm like, oh my God, that's a West Chandler jersey. Yeah. 84. And I pull out his, I still have West Chandler's football. That's card. awesome. In my my collectible set. That's awesome. God yeah, bless West. You know, to West Chandler. To West Chandler. How about that? Yes. And the San Diego Chargers. San Diego Super Chargers. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So Miyagi makes him this really awesome shower costume. And it's really cool because he's able to close the shower between him and Allie to kind of create this like private moment. And again, she's really into him. But there's this aura of Johnny Lawrence just hanging over this whole damn thing. And that's something that has to be dealt with. It's like a festering wound, like something you have to pick at. So Daniel kind of sees an opportunity to get some revenge on them and as he's lighting lighting up a uh, or rolling up rolling up a blunt in the bathroom, he's gonna spray him with water and just totally book it, which totally sets off the Cobra Kai. They're dressed as skeletons. They all went as the same thing, of course. And of course, they catch Daniel. They pummel. They give him the the next big beating of his life. Fisticuffs. Fisticuffs. That's right. Yes, <laughs> it's a film. They could have called it the the Karate Fisticuffs. Hashtag. But here comes Miyagi to the rescue, and we kind of see that he's quite uh, proficient in his his karate technique. I mean, he could probably take on Kreese, too, if he truly, really wanted to. And throughout the sequels, we see Miyagi do a little bit more of that. But I really like this little bit. He just comes to the rescue, and then through all the, you know, the ancient techniques and just... uh, his culture, he's able to kind of provide home remedies for Daniel to help it, help him get better. I always love the one where he slaps his hand and then rubs him up and then puts it on his thing. And he's like, oh, man, I wish that could make my shoulder feel better. <laughs> I think that technique's called recce. Okay. It's actually a massage technique that works, probably not to that extent. Yeah. But the transfer of energy and heat, not to get too spiritual and everything. No, yeah, Because yeah. I'm not that guy. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, man, that's iconic. He. Well, I don't want to get the cat out of the bag here for the listeners. Sure, sure. But later on, when Daniel most needs it, and here it comes, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's yeah. From the bonsais to this seventy-five-year-old man shows up and just kicks the hell out of the Cobra Kai. Yeah, all and of them. Daniel is like, oh, mm-hmm. I think I have my light. Yeah, or my my lighthouse in this this innavigable sea of violence. Will you teach me karate? Will you teach me karate? Mm-hmm. Yes, Danielson. Uh- now, the first step is to kind of get some alleviation from the endless torment of the Cobra Kai. So they go to the dojo yep. and, you know, bargain with Kreese to, you know, will you leave him alone while we while we train and, you know, wait till the tournament. So there's this huge All-Valley 
karate tournament that's going to be the culmination of the film. So they make a deal where the Cobra Kai can't bother Daniel or harass him like they have been in order for him to train properly. And when they get into the dojo or into the tournament, they can pummel him to death if they want to. Let me talk about the tournament for a while because that's from a writing point of view. It's really brilliant. Mm-hmm. If you take, uh, like, you're awful hard on Man of Steel because there's just collateral damage everywhere mm-hmm. with no significant characters. It's why we have masked stormtroopers because they just become fodder. Mm-hmm. Okay, at this point, from the tournament entry to the end of the film, mm-hmm. I would argue this becomes a sports movie. Mm-hmm. And let me just say real quick, the end of Act 1, I think, is actually Miyagi saving Daniel on Halloween. The beginning of Act 2, deciding to teach Daniel the ways of karate and enter this All-Valley tournament. Like, we're on the, we're, we're, we're checking the boxes on the way to this tournament. So, in a really brilliant pacing move, we see the bracket on screen and how Daniel has to move through the various competitors. And it's just littered with Cobra Kai's. Mm-hmm. And as we start, you can see the competition's pretty weak, and Daniel does okay through the first couple rounds, kind of gets his feet underneath him. And then he starts, I think by the quarterfinals, he's starting to take on some of the bigger bullies that we've seen Mm -hmm. from previous encounters with the Cobra Kai in the film. And what you get is a ticking bomb um, effect insofar as we're watching Johnny just wreck people left and right. Mm -hmm. And Daniel doing pretty good by his own standards once he kind of gets his rhythm. Yeah. But it moves the movie at a very, very quick pace to a culminating event. But it's done through action. And it's almost montage-like. I wouldn't quite call it montage, but it's pretty damn close. Mm -hmm. And the movie is, we're full-on sports mode. Tournaments really work well. You know why? Mm -hmm. You lose and it's over. It's all or nothing every time out. So mm-hmm. and, that, and then also, I, as you progress, I think each level gets harder. Too. The stakes go up, exactly. From yeah. the writing point of view, as the conflict increases, as you move toward the turning point of Act 2, which mm-hmm. we're going to get to here in just a minute. Yes. His injury, I'm sure, is where we're going to go, right? Mm-hmm. That's the reversal. You get each one of his competitors being a little bit more formidable than the previous. Mm-hmm. You know another movie does that really well since we're sort of on the martial yeah, go, arts go thing? Ahead, yeah. It's Bloodsport. From the final battle with the glass on the sticky contraptions on their hands. That movie does that really well too. And the techniques that the fighters use in that is really well done. This isn't quite as diverse in the martial arts techniques that that movie does. But that's okay. This is a way better movie than yeah. Bloodsport. Yeah. Nonetheless, you start to build up a little bit of a familiarity with the opposition to the Cobra Kai and Johnny and Daniel mm-hmm. and all the other competitors. Mm-hmm. And you start to recognize them as the tournament progresses. It's really, really well done. And I think that whole sequence is maybe about eight minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if we get to now kind of the, the, the training of, of Daniel, which I think is the most unique part of the entire film. Yeah. But the know, cart way before the horse here, didn't I? Sorry he, about that. No, no, that's, no, that's perfect. But, you know, in Rocky films, obviously, he's going to pummel a bag and lift some weights. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're a Jedi, you're going to train with, you know, your, your Jedi training training ball and whatever. In karate, I, if you've never seen, you know, martial arts taught this way before. Immediately, he starts Daniel with the classic line, wax on with the left hand, wax off with the right hand, and make your way through all the cars here. Not really telling him, you're learning the basics of karate, it almost seems like chore work at this point. So he goes through all of Miyagi's very classic cars on his property, which is very made of Japan. Like, I almost kind of think maybe he designed this house himself. Like, sure. Cool property and has a, this collection of classic cars. 
which even that's going to pay off a little bit later. There's a lot of setups in this film, and I think they all pay off by the time we get to the film's end. Just kind of little seedlings planted throughout. No question. Mm -hmm. Him learning those karate skills is just done through discipline and rote repetition. Yeah. Just simple muscle memory. Yeah. So we get the wax on, wax off first, and then he comes uh, the next day, and he's sanding the floor. Mm, Sanding the floor, yeah. And the same kind of technique with the left hand with the right hand. Sand the whole deck. So he finishes that, and then... Miyagi's trying to do a really interesting thing of catching a fly with chopsticks. And I think this is an interesting moment, too, where Daniel's actually able to do it. Like, this seems, like, impossible. And he's able to do it almost kind of like that. He is the hero, the chosen hero of our story, the chosen one. I want to go so Luke Skywalker, Anakin, kind of a thing. but classic, right. Yeah. He would be able to do that because he's destined to defeat the enemy. In the quest. Mm -hmm. The mentor usurps the teacher. Mm-hmm. And this is not there yet, but we start to see the potential in Daniel because he can catch the fly with the chopsticks, which if you think about it literally has no bearing on one's martial arts prowess. Yeah, But the fact that he has the fine motor skills and the quickness to which Miyagi has never been able to do mm-hmm. shows that, man, we got a chance here. Yes. Goes the body like never before. What, and what does he tell him too when he does it? Beginner's luck. Beginner's luck. <laughs> yeah. Rather be lucky than good. So he takes from there. He takes him out to paint the fence this time. Paint the fence. Up and down, up and down. And then he, he finishes the fence, and that looks like that's taken like six hours. And then he's like, "Oh no, the entire property!" And he's going to be there all night painting this fence. And then he both he, sides. Both sides. Yes. And then he tells him, he's like, he's like, you start uh, early, six o'clock in in the morning, and he comes the next day, and there's more paint waiting from this time. He has to paint the house. Side, is, it, is this the point? Side to side. Is this the point where he's so sore that Miyagi gives him the hand clap yes. to like get his shoulder to release? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Daniel doesn't know it, and I don't even think the audience really knows it yet. Yeah, but he's going through a pretty diligent practice mm-hmm. of discipline Mm -hmm. and defense he's not teaching him anything offensively i think the audience and dan i don't think we know i don't think we know that no we don't we're about to get the revelation here here in a bit on on painting the fence side or painting the house side to side he has to paint this whole house green while miyagi has a day fishing yeah and when he comes back i think daniel you know really lets him have he's like he's like what the hell Miyagi? like like I'm here, you know, I'm painting your damn fence, I'm painting your damn house, like, I'm just doing chores, like, what the hell, what what gives, goddammit, like, oh, we're just supposed to be learning karate, and then I think Miyagi just stops him, he's like, show me wax, wax on, wax off, and he does wax on, wax No, he kind of half-assed it, and he's like, no, show, and like, he makes him do it the proper he way. He tries to do it on the floor, he's like, no, up here, wax on, wax off, and then, like, after he goes through all the rotations, he's, then he says, show me wax on, wax off, and then that, he starts attacking him. And through the techniques of the chores, he's learning the basic parrying and self-defense techniques of karate and how to strike and block kicks and punches. And we love it. It's brilliant. It's the first time I saw this, this revelation, which I probably called the midpoint of the film where it all clicks for the character. I was just elated. I was just like, that is, that's brilliant. That's, I've never seen that before. And the way it pays off, like Daniel now has the skills that now once he hones on those skills, he might have a chance. You brought up a really interesting point that I want to go to school here for just a minute on, and that's the payoff. Mm -hmm. The whole pleasure experience and story is based on building up conflict 
and then releasing that conflict, whether it's a yell or a scream or a laugh. Like that's the whole premise on story is creating conflict and then relieving the tension for the listeners. There's an element of time that's working against Daniel in this this sequence of the film. There's a tournament coming. Yes. And he's working in the salt mines here for Mr. Miyagi. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yep. And we're like, come on, man. Like teach this kid how to throw a punch. Yeah, he's do gonna, something. He's gonna it's get a, killed out there. But when they put it together, mm-hmm. we recognize that at least half of the martial arts technique Daniel's mastered, which is defense. Now, whether that plays out in the tournament, we'll talk about when we get to the tournament here in a few minutes. But it relieves the tension because oh, we realize this whole thing has not been in vain, and all that time wasn't wasted because Mr. Miyagi just taught Daniel through discipline mm-hmm. and hard work and wrote repetition and muscle memory and all of those things transfer yes time and repetition how to defend himself which is really important because all you got to do is land one punch but if you can block all the other ones you win one zero exactly right mm-hmm. okay go ahead so in between all of this we still have you know our love story of the film you know Daniel and Allie and I always loved their first date because, you know, again, the humility of Daniel. Like he doesn't have his own car. Mom has to take them to go play miniature golf. I remember those days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting just because, you know, they've coming from Reseda to the hills. Yeah. Beverly Hills. They have this sprawling mansion. She family obviously they're coming to push the car down the hill after they pick her up i, I love that moment because they set that up earlier in yep. the opening credits that this is a thing their car doesn't quite have the legs it had they have to jump start it sometimes mm-hmm. like it doesn't come out of left field which is nice but their parents are coming back from their racquetball at the country club and they're very unkeen of daniel they want her to date the johnny lawrence type right but Again, why Ellie's so cool is she, that's not what she wants. She wants to be. She's okay with. She take, is pretty cool, isn't she? She's, she's a pretty cool chick. Isn't she's she? okay with taking the ride with mom in the car and jump starting it to get us to where we need to go. And she doesn't think nothing of it. I think she helps him push. Yes. Oh, she jump starts it. She puts the clutch. Oh, in the that's gear. right. She pops it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 But she's fine with it. And she's not judging any of them for no. where they're coming from. Which that's that, that's a very admirable quality for a character like this. And you know, at this point, Daniel has more of an issue with it than she does. Yeah, he's he's weird that she's not weirded out by it. <laughs> right. He's looking for the things that, you know, like... What's going to make this chick flee? Exactly. It doesn't show up. And then, and then just through kind of like being a victim of circumstance and just kind of screwing it up on his own, he kind of walks in at the unopportune time when at this, again, this swanky country club-ish uh, mm-hmm. gala, mm-hmm. she's dancing with Johnny Lawrence and he like throws a kiss on her oh yeah takes off he gets spaghetti dumped all over him but he can't really see that you know she really stands up and says you know i wasn't i wasn't that's not what i want johnny i don't want you right but i want that guy with spaghetti on his white i want pants, this i want this on spa- his white levi's i want that spaghetti ralph macchio <laughs> i gotta tell you real quick like yeah. you know i kind of like you know uh, my hair, like when I was growing up in high school, kind of looked a little Ralph Macchio-ish. If they had remade this film when I was in high school, I would have been, I would have made the perfect Daniel LaRusso. God damn it for them not doing that at that time. <laughs> you guys hear that? Jesse, he's calling for it. Yes. Remake it. Rem- no, you, you, you're going to have to remake a time machine too to take me back. Yeah. But 
But then I think we get to your hair was like a little bit, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And as a kid, deep as a kid, when I was like five or six, my hair was very Seth Brundle from The Fly. Like oh, it was very curly. Jesus. Yeah, there you go. But we get to our, my favorite scene of the entire film, which is what I call the Mr. Miyagi revelation, and I, I'm calling the end of Act Two, which is on this kind of you know Miyagi's having on an anniversary of sorts. Uh, yeah this kind of drunken night and these toasts to his wife that's no longer there. And, you know, through his kind of drunken speech and slumber, we kind of, the pieces start falling into place of what brought Miyagi here, which was, you you know, he, this is interesting too. He was, help me, Matt, if I'm, if I'm mistaking any of this, he was a soldier in the American army, Japanese soldier during World War II, you know, test, you know, with, you know, fighting different battles and everything while his wife was interned in a, internment camp at manzanar yep. in california right who was pregnant with their son and they both died during right. childbirth both died during childbirth him being a japanese soldier for the americans at that time is probably pretty controversial certainly especially for the treatment of japanese individuals at that time I mean, right. internment camps my god right but this is i think this is absolutely tragic you know that's 1943-44 we're in 1984 present day Miyagi's gone 40-ish years alone. Sad. No wife, no son. And then that's why I think the father-son dynamic between LaRusso and Miyagi works so well is because he's never had this close relationship with anybody until this moment. Well, we recognize Daniel defending himself and winning this tournament isn't really why Miyagi took a shine to him. Mm Mm-hmm. He took a shine to him because it's the chance to raise the son he never got. Yes. And man, that's heart wrenching. Mm-hmm. But it's also yeah. why we like both of those. Yeah. And Daniel doesn't even know it. And that's I think that's the brilliance of the writing mm-hmm. in the Pat Morita character, Mr. Miyagi, mm-hmm. in this film. Can I just say real quick, just a little anecdote. Uh Pat Morita was actually nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this performance. I you should have won. Yeah. Really great. I it's you really buy into him and and all the philosophy that he has and he's just so likable there's that that scene that we we skipped where there he's doing the crane technique on the posts oh yeah and they come back and those guys have drunkenly like left beer bottles all over the his car and he's like <laughs> and daniel asks him have you have you ever done that before he's like no first time first time yeah <laughs> like he's got a nice dry wry sense of humor ah. to his character which is also very very likable yeah he's brilliantly cast he's a great i think he makes the movie like you brought up earlier it's such a great corollary yeah he's the mick to daniel's rocky there's no question i bring up that conversation too because john g adelson directed rocky one and five you just stole the words out of my mouth yeah. so yeah john g adelson knew exactly what he was doing in mm-hmm. that regard and he found the perfect mentor and mentee protege mm-hmm. yeah and they work so well together and there's so much at stake it's as mr miyagi is helping daniel learn how to defend himself and hopefully take down the cobra kai what we're learning is he's also growing daniel up oh yeah to the point where he shares his family's secrets to him and as much as your favorite scene in that film yeah is when he bears his soul in a drunken mm-hmm. night remembering his deceased son and mm-hmm. and and wife yes is daniel's birthday yes man he gives him the greatest birthday present and my question for you jesse is would you pick the yellow one (laughs) 
Probably not. But they're all awesome. They're all they? awesome. I think you pick a winner no matter what. So Daniel shows up on his birthdays. I come by, I have a birthday present for you. And they go through this little birthday celebration. And he lets Daniel pick one of the cars. One of five cars. That he waxed. Mm-hmm. And Daniel's like, are you kidding me? He's like, yeah, I'm serious. Take whichever one you want. Mm-hmm. And you just recognize how much that guy loves Daniel at that point. It's such a nice moment. Yes. Daniel doesn't even deserve these. Like, he's kind of douchey in that scene for me. The way he's poorly acted. And he's kind of had a falling out with Allie at that point. If I'm not mistaken, does he even have... Uh, I mean, he's still wearing white. I mean, it's just the red jacket. Yeah, he's it's got the red that, jacket. That silly mm-hmm. red mm-hmm. Um, windbreaker. Yeah. Man. The greatest birthday present of all time. Mm-hmm. And as he drives off, Banzai! Banzai, Danielson! Banzai! 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 Yeah, it's so awesome. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Like, I think the process is complete at that at that moment. Like, yeah. Whether they win or lose this karate tournament, I think something's been cemented here that's going to last forever. Well, Jesse, one of the archetypes in growing up mm-hmm. is your first car mm-hmm. and your dad teaching you how to drive yeah. or who. You know, well, no, the, I know that's a little and, gender specific, but in this movie it applies. But what because... we forgot to mention, Daniel's fatherless. That, right. And we don't kind of know where the father is in this situation. And he's he, the closest thing. Miyagi's the closest thing he's had to a father. He gives him the car so that he can go get the girl. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. He even hands her the, the photo. Their little um, fair photo kind of thing. That's fucking beautiful, mm-hmm. man. And at this point, if you're not all in on Daniel and Miyagi's side, yeah. I don't tell you. You yeah. must have no soul. Yeah. It's kind of the reason why I even pursued watching Karate Kid Part 2 and 3 was to see more of this dynamic at play. And there's an even, even more brilliant scene in the second film of Miyagi's father passing. Yeah. And, you know, the two of them having a moment kind of kind of this little same dynamic I, I i think it's a relationship that works really well not just in this film but in all the other ones agreed can i ask you this matt because i have not seen the cobra kai television show it is on my endless oh. queue of television to watch which is vast in its own right yeah but do they address the miyagi uh, character at all in cobra kai well obviously he's deceased yes so he's spoken of so cobra kai is sort of presented by title as johnny lawrence's story yeah and I don't want to give too much away for our listeners, mm-hmm. but I'm telling you all, if you have some time this summer, go binge it. It is fantastic. Costner's show on Paramount is my favorite. This is a close second. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're both terrific <clears throat> shows. Yes, sure. That's a, that's a version of the answer. Okay. Yes, he's addressed. Obviously, he's deceased. Yeah. But we pick it up much later in the story, and Daniel's lessons that Miyagi has taught him mm-hmm. have been applied in an auto capacity. Like yeah. he sells cars, yeah, and it kind of gives him a little bit of element of cheesiness to it. Yeah. Whereas Johnny kind of takes on the role of Daniel upon arriving at that apartment complex in Reseda early in Karate Kid. Like sure. he's basically the maintenance guy, mm-hmm. or maybe not Daniel, but um, the Miyagi character. Yeah. It turns the tables for as douchey as you said that Johnny Lawrence was, and he is. The entire story spins that narrative because you get it from his point of view. And and you start to recognize, oh, wait, maybe that's why he does it. And, and that's a cool perspective, too. To get the villain and develop the villain, quote-unquote villain, yeah. and make them sympathetic is no small trick. Uh-huh. And that show does that so well. There's points in that everybody that I talk to that watched that show pulls for Johnny more than Daniel. And you should. Daniel had three films to have his spotlight. Like this is a unique kind of reversal of fate for to see it from the eyes of 
the antagonist. Brother, they're, they're through two seasons, and I cannot wait for season three. The way season two ends, you're, you just you can't even believe what just happened. Yes, it's fantastic. But yes, the Miyagi character is addressed, uh, and he actually almost acts as sort of like uh, an apparition or a ghost at Daniel's side most of the film. He's definitely, definitely in it. Show me pentafence. So Daniel reconciles with Allie. You know, they, they, they make a man. She's going to be there for him on his tournament date. But let's get right to it, Matt. Let's get to the All Valley Karate Championship Tournament. And this is also interesting because I guess they didn't really read the rules or the uh, qualifications to be in this tournament. But you had to, like, be, like, uh, a certain degree belt to get it. <laughs> and Daniel hasn't been training for belts. He's just been waxing floors and painting fences. Yeah. <coughs> so, sneakily... They send him on his way. Oh, he's he's black belt. And so they send him on his way, and Miyagi, like, steals one out of this bag. Like, Miyagi's a little sneaky guy. Like, he's, yeah. got, he's got one up his sleeve. But then they get into the actual tournament, and he's asking Miyagi, what do I do? He's like, I don't know. First, for, Never done this before. <laughs> so that's where that comedy comes out, as wise as he is. This is kind of new territory for himself. But if the lessons he's taught are retained... And if that's what comes forth, Daniel will be just fine. Well, I think there's a line, something Miyagi says, Okinawa karate used to live. Mm-hmm. not for You know, basically mm-hmm. saying, like, I never did it in a tournament form. Yes. I use it so I didn't get killed. Exactly. So we'll see what it looks like here. Uh, so what do I do? Win. Mm-hmm. So I think in screenwriting terms, this would be our crisis, the All Valley Karate Tournament. Okay. Yeah. Because our end conflict is go- is going to be the final face-off with uh, with Johnny Lawrence. Okay. This is what the film's been building to since Freddie Fernandez took him to the beach. I just love mentioning that character. I love him. <laughs> he didn't even come up in. He didn't even come to the tournament to support Daniel, that bastard. Bastard. But you know, Daniel kind of takes a little bit of you know, kind of getting into it to um, kind of get his feet feet going on this on this tournament. And then once he's won his first match, now he's off to the races. Right. And we get kind of that montage of sorts that you mentioned scored to um, uh, You're the Best Around, which I told you off mic just a second ago. You're the Best was originally written for Rocky Three, but was rejected by Sylvester Stallone because he favored Eye of the Tiger. Like, talk about, like, a changing the dynamic of 80s film music. <laughs> like, well, we could go on and on about Stallone's underappreciated brilliance on this oh, podcast. Oh, definitely, but definitely. Here it is again. Exactly. That's a win. Yeah, I like this song too. But this yeah, song, sure. this song's definitely cheesy, but I think "Eye of the Tiger" fits the Rocky mythos way better. Oh yeah. But I think we get a, a cool little moment here where Daniel rises again. That bracket that's been set up to we got to go from this level to this level to this level to get to where we're going, and we we see that happen. And we see. I think in the quarters he gets the first legitimate Cobra Kai competitor. Yeah. He fights one early on. It's just mm-hmm. a guy. Yes. And it's one of the guys that was in the skeleton outfits that kicked his ass earlier on mm-hmm. Halloween. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, Daniel kind of runs through him. And you can see Kreese sort of standing there with his arms crossed watching well, it's interesting down not... his brow. And he's, you can tell he's like, 
we got ourselves a little issue here, fellas. Well, it starts like Creased is like, oh, it's nothing to worry about. And then, oh, wait a minute. And then, oh, boy. And then we got to do something about yeah. that. And then so when we get to the semifinals, he's against another Cobra Kai. And he literally tells one of his students. And again, again, the villain, the the villain, main other main villain of the film is John Creese, where he tells him, I want LaRusso out of this thing. Yep. Get him out of there. So what's he going to do? We don't know what he's going to do. And. Man, he gives him like a total just like gut shot to like his like upper thigh leg and just like totally incapacitates LaRusso. Blasts his knee. Yeah. Goes up. Daniel LaRusso's kind of uh, sort of facing backwards a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he gives him like a flying stamp kick right on the inside of his knee and. Instant disqualification for him. Well, but again. And ACL, goodbye. Yeah. But then again, why I kind of. Why I really like this film is. And why Kreese is probably the ultimate villain, the emperor to uh, mm-hmm. Johnny's Darth Vader. In black the whole time. Mm hmm. He runs up to uh, Daniel right away and says, Daniel, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean. He like. He feels instantly like, why did I listen to him? Yeah. Why, why did I do that? Yeah. So Johnny makes mincemeat of his match. So we have the final setup of. You know, Johnny versus an incapacitated LaRusso. So he has, what, 15 minutes? 15 minutes. So make an appearance back on there. Otherwise, he forfeits to Johnny, the ultimate champion. So we kind of get this behind the scenes in the in the locker room bit, which we talked about. It's been set up earlier. You know, this, this healing sensibility that Miyagi brings where he claps his hands and just do your magic. But I think we, we share a, a couple great moments there, too, before that, whereas... Did you think I'd make it this far or this and that? And at this point, Daniel, again, kind of channels his inner Rocky. He wants to now go the distance. He's made it this far, and this isn't good enough. I need to go out there because if I don't, they're still going to make hell for me at school after this. Well, Miyagi was the one that brings up the issue of retiring. Mm -hmm. You've already proven everything you need to prove. We don't need to go any further. And then he asks Allie to leave. And they have that behind-the-scenes talk where Daniel says, let me try this, do whatever you need to do. Can't you do your hand thing? It's not exactly how he says it, yeah. but that's the insinuation. And Miyagi heals him enough to at least get him <clears throat> back out the floor. And like Willis Reed, mm-hmm. Daniel LaRusso comes back onto the floor to the announcer saying, what is this? Daniel LaRusso's return to the turn. Like navig- you know, <laughs> yes, narrating exactly. the play-by-play. Exactly. And he's basically on a wheel and a half. Mm-hmm. His knee's gimpy, and he's now paying off what we saw earlier, which was earlier on the beach, Daniel was watching Mr. Miyagi train on this stump, mm-hmm. doing this balancing technique where he would jump off one foot and kick and then land on the same foot essentially right? he asks him he's like what were you doing out there he's like call crane call crane mm-hmm. and we see daniel trying his version of the same technique mm-hmm. not with any success yeah. but now that really matters because he's got one leg to go on mm-hmm. so he and johnny go at it can i mention something real quick sure. uh the the remake of the karate kid from i think it was 2010 uh, with uh, Jackie Chan and, uh, and Will Smith's son, Jaden Smith. If you watch it, it's it's identical to this film. Like, you, you, the beats that I've been mentioning, that film, like, hits them all in the same way. Instead of wax on, wax off, it's put the jacket up, put take the jacket down, put the jacket up, put, take the jacket down. In that film, you know, they didn't do as good of a job as setting up this, this moment, which was the crane. Um, he does some weird kind of, like, snake kick. It's kind of stupid. 
but it's mm-hmm. not set up as well. Like here, like we've established, what are you doing out there? And then later in the film, we see Daniel trying to do it himself. Yeah. And then now when he actually really needs it, he needs to do that. Right. Yeah. As far as the remake, I would just pass on that and just watch <laughs> the original. What about the one with Hillary Swank? <laughs> pass on that too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, so we go on and we have the final showdown between good and evil. This is what we've been building up for for two hours. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Daniel takes the first point. Yeah, he takes like the first two points. Punches Johnny in the chest. Mm-hmm. Crease pulls Johnny to the side. Well, because his, no- his nose is bleeding, yeah. He wipes it off and says, sweep the leg. The best line of the movie. Sweep the leg. <laughs> Johnny looks at him like, what, Sensei? You, you heard, heard me. me. Sweep the leg. No mercy. No mercy. Again, now, now I think we're getting that other moment, too, where Johnny's really hesitating to, do I buy into what Crease is telling me? Do I really go through with it? And he doesn't even really sweep the leg. What he does is he grabs Daniel's leg and, like, boom, elbows it on the joint, uh-huh. the knee joint. Jesus. Yeah. How was that not a disqualification? <laughs> he gets a warning. I don't know the rules of karate. I never took karate as a kid. It never interested me. But, like, it sounds like he should have been kicked out after that move. For sure. Yeah. One of the things that you got to be careful with is the choreograph, the choreography in any one of these action sequences because yeah. you duck and you're supposed to parry and you're catching, you know, four knuckles in your jaw. Exactly. I love that scene when Daniel goes down and Johnny's trying to drop the elbow on him and he just keeps missing as they roll off. Yes. That's fantastically yeah, I love, done. I love that. So even though Daniel's up, mm-hmm. Johnny's pissed and it's it's go time. Mm-hmm. And so Johnny ends up tying it up. And so we're down to like the final showdown between the two of these characters. Mm-hmm. And what do we see? Crane. We see the crane technique. Mm-hmm. And Johnny's kind of looking at him like, what the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. And he walks in to the biggest kick in the face that anyone's ever walked into. It's like all of the training that they've been through. He just said, fuck it. Yes. I'm going to block this with my face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he takes one in the kisser. That drops him like a bad habit. Exactly. LaRusso wins. It's the tur- hey, Matt, you gotta like, I don't know when you watched it if you if you timed it. Like I ti- I I looked at my clock and I swear to God the movie ends in like you got thirty seconds from from kick to fade out. You, it's like thirty. It's so quick. Is that right? It, it happens so fast. I didn't know that. But then again, a, a nice moment from Johnny Lawrence too. He goes and hands Daniel the trophy. Says you're all right, LaRusso. Even that, like they've made a man saying. You've made it this far, and we never thought you would be able to compete with us on this level. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. We get a nice uh, moment there, and I think, and again, channeling that Rocky thing. Hey, Mr. Miyagi, we did it! And then we just get a nice fade out on Miyagi's freeze frame. We end the movie. How do you not leave the theater just like on pure ecstasy just like ready to go have like the best day of your life right like it's it's so it's so you're not depressed you're you're just elated right yeah it's it's a perfect ending i don't really care what happens with him and Allie. i don't care what life is back at the apartment <laughs> i just glad that they won the tournament daniel has solidified his place mm-hmm. in whatever hierarchy there is at the school with the cobra kai mm-hmm. and with miyagi's help yeah he can stand on his own two feet even though he couldn't during the final fight sequence mm-hmm. it's a great ending i don't need any more let me mention this the, the original ending though is actually what was lopped onto the beginning of karate kid part two was the end of this tournament with yeah. them in the parking lot and Kreese is actually giving it to Johnny, saying, like, you failed me, this and that. And he's about to kick his ass in the parking lot. And then Miyagi steps in, and he's about to lay one on Kreese. 
that was a that was the original ending of this film here. I don't know whose decision, whether it was Avildsen or the editor or a producer that said no, end it at the karate. Genius move because that's that's the hype, but that the movie needs to end there. That's that whiplash moment. Well, it's exactly. It's also why the second film doesn't play as well as the first because they tack that on to the end, mm-hmm. tack the end of the first film as the beginning of the second one. And then we go about our business. He forgets about Ali. And they go to Japan. They go to Japan and like he goes off and falls in love with someone else, you bastard. That movie, this is hilarious too. That film actually made more money than this You gotta one be did. kidding No, me. I swear to God it did. Really? Yes. Shame on the movie going public. And even Karate Kid Part 3 for as shitty as that one is too. And they actually bring Kreese back into it, and Kreese wants revenge, and they bring his brother into the fold. Like, it's pretty stupid. And there's a another karate tournament. That movie made a lot of money, too. Like, this, this... I was most surprised in my research with, like, how profitable this franchise actually was. Not just this film, but the whole series, which, when you think about it, you kind of like, oh, the Karate Kid, ha, 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 ha. No, it actually it stood its ground throughout the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Like, it had its place in film box office history. Oh, for sure. Yeah. All right, so we've crane kicked. We've won the day. So I think time now more than ever. We'll give a quick recap. You know, our ratings for film review here are Rock Gut, uh, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. So, Matt, where are you at with The Karate Kid? Single Barrel. Uh, It's not quite to the level that it's going to be one of the best Mm -hmm. of the best, but it's really damn good. Yeah. And I think it took what was... A pretty tried-and-true formula, which is the underdog who's mentored by the forgotten to overtake great obstacles and come out successful. Like That's kind of the theme of every sports film, which is, to me, what this movie is. Oh, definitely. Um, It just did it in a different way. To do it through karate in a tournament with really well-developed characters that I care about, Mm -hmm. it's just... Anytime this movie's on, I will watch it. I never get sick of this film. Mm-hmm. I could watch it over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Single barrel. Single barrel for me. Excellent. You know, kind of looking, we have the movie here on the, on the shelf with us. You know, we've been pretty uh, good with our timing on these films. You know, Ghostbusters celebrated its 35th anniversary this summer in June, and, and so did The Karate Kid. So, again... We wouldn't be having this iteration of this film if it didn't matter and if it didn't hold its place in film history. They wouldn't re-release garbage. So I think I'm falling in line with somewhere where you're at too as a single barrel film. It's not quite like Rocky where it's this a legendary like sports underdog film, but the completely you know developed characters other than Freddie Fernandez uh, that. <laughs> I think they're just so likable and you can get behind them and a film that totally, again, speaking to our screenwriting points that you all have learned now at this point, this film checks all the boxes too uh, in every right. A very likable female protagonist, an underdog we can get behind, a very hateable two villains really, uh, organization. Mm -hmm. No, I think The Karate Kid's a, a, a film that I think all people should definitely see and I think you might write it off when you hear the word Karate Kid and think it's a kid's movie. But don't let that deter you because there's a lot to like about it. Look, it's John G. Avildsen. Yes. If it's a physical confrontational film, why wouldn't you at least give it the nod of possibility just based on the history with Rocky? It's John G. Avildsen, people. Mm-hmm. And if there's any question, 
as to what came next and how this played out, I'm telling everybody, go get the free week on YouTube Red and watch both season one and season two of Cobra Kai. Mm -hmm. It's every bit as good as this film, and it takes that side character that they loved. It's it's everything that Better Call Saul never ended up being. Mm. Like, I think that show is fucking garbage. It's unwatchably slow, and they're just dragging out the worst parts of prequelville that you I, we talked about ad nauseum how yeah, much i hate no. i hate that show mm-hmm. it's ridiculous i'm so glad his brother's finally dead <laughs> god it's all of that yeah done with an expertise that still allows the characters that we grew to love in the karate kid and the other further installments as the as the characters that drive the story but with the roles reversed people go watch cobra kai on youtube red it's the best show you're missing. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's wrap up this episode with a flight. Uh, we'll have one more out the door of this Grange Town. This, this is pretty good, this this, this uh, Highland Scotch whiskey. It's been well served for this cask. Very well served. Yeah. It's totally unique in its own right, which the films are very unique in their own right, too. Indeed. So kind of playing on that Cobra Kai mentality, taking a idea from a film property from the 80s, uh, that's now been adapted into a television show. And I think maybe, you know, Matt, we talk about TV all the time too. We're like in arguably one of the best eras of television ever. It, it's maybe better than what's being turned out in the theaters No right question. Now. So, you know, I think more times than not, I think, you know, film producers think, no, we need another sequel in the theater to get people in the seats. And this summer's great evidence of people just aren't doing that. Right. So what film... My question to you is, what film property would make for a great TV show? For me, there has to be enough characters to carry on episodic weekly. I do scare quotes around weekly installments. Mm -hmm. So I like ensemble pieces myself. Sure. So there's some ones that are possibilities. Like we talked about The Hangover a little bit. Mm -hmm. The trick with that would be how can you keep the R to NC-17 minus rating. And I know that Netflix, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff with horror that you could consider, but I'm going to twitch, switch this a little bit here and I'm going to go to 1965 and a Western, the sons of Katie Elder. Okay. The way that film ends, there's enough left where there's still plenty of adventures for the sons to sort of carry on. Mm -hmm. I love the cast as much as I love John Wayne. I also equally love Dean Martin Mm -hmm. and Although it would be aged and it obviously wouldn't be those characters, there's enough diversity among the characters mm-hmm. to where each one of them plays a necessary role in the team component that that film could do or that did really well. And like that's not a great movie. It's just an okay <laughs> film. Yeah. But it's got a lot of potential for further installments. And a couple things with Westerns that I think lead well to episodic drama. The first is there's always another adventure. The hero's home is the wild, so they're comfortable on the rock or the cactus. And there's always distant horizons that are beckoning. As the wilderness is untamed, you can do whatever you want because it's untamed. And so if they would build it the way when the X-Files was done really well, I think we've got a big, big story here. When the X-Files really worked, which was seasons one through five for me, Mm -hmm. there was... Enough conspiracy theory episodes mixed in with the out of continuity per conspiracy Mm -hmm. canon to keep you 
the procedural interested. the procedural mixed with the serial. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, that also. But the X Files succeeded in that you had standalone episodes that had nothing to do with the larger conspiracy mm-hmm. hole, and then about two to three, maybe four episodes per season, mm-hmm. you got more development in the larger conspiracy of aliens, mm-hmm. and it was really well crafted that way. You can do that in seasons, yeah. and when episodic TV's done well, you have a larger hole, which mm-hmm. is let's tackle this. But along the way, we have individual fights that we take on each week. With four great characters, yeah, I think you've got pitch and and I like I like the West too. Yeah, I think that could be that people could buy into that. You know, like to have a show like Deadwood too that was very right. popular. Right. Like the what you could do Western on television. Like I totally buy into that. Except we won't do it in iambic pentameter with Ian McShane. No, exactly. That show's wild, isn't it? Have <laughs> it, you ever watched Deadwood? It is. It is interesting to Strange, say the least. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I, I I I tried to choose some options. You know, whether it's something that's been they've been dabbling with remakes or sequels. That something that just might be better fitted for television. I actually have a few options oh, here. Yeah. All right. The first one is a film I actually love from the 1980s called Monster Squad. Mm-hmm. And if you've never seen it, it's act, it's the Goonies meets the Universal Monsters. Yeah. Think of a show like that, a very Stranger Things esque show where you have you know a monster per season. You have Dracula this season and a mummy this season and a werewolf this season. You could have a lot of fun with that. I mean, I think it kind of writes itself. Um, they've been talking about remaking that movie for forever, but maybe television's the avenue. And then another one, Judge Dredd. They, Stallone bastardized that movie. That movie's terrible. But then they rebooted it with Carl Urban in the 2011 called Just Dread. Mm-hmm. The movie's actually pretty good, but no one went to see it. Mm-hmm take that and just put it on television dude that's such a large sprawling comic epic mega city like it's it's gigantic just do it on television i think that could be pretty good too okay and then speaking again to some sequels that we're going to get next year and one we just got a couple of weeks ago you know they keep trying to do a additional sequel slash reboots to ghostbusters man if you want to just bust ghosts and bust a ghost of the week every week why, why can't you do that on episodic television Look, it gets to the same thing that I just said. A larger baddie ghost with interesting weekly installments in pursuit of that. It Mm -hmm. sets up perfectly. And again, you've said it, and I don't mean to steal your thunder here on this. You're hitting the same thing that I just said. For episodic TV to work for Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. and Sounds Like You, you have to have an interesting collection of characters because each one of them has their own story. And that gives you a minimal four entry points into what's being told. Whether it's... The player, the architect, the engineer, and like the mm-hmm. the like oh, this is going to sound ridiculous. Yeah, it's why Jumanji works. Yeah, people like Jumanji. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen Jumanji, that's a solid film. Which one? The new one. The new one. Mm-hmm. The characters in there are those pieces: the weapons expert, the everyman, the scientist, the you know the the TNA buxom. Like yeah. it, it's it's. And you're saying the same thing. Okay, mm-hmm. you got one more. What's your last one? And this might be the one I want to see most. Okay. And so this came out, what, two weeks ago? Men mm-hmm. in Black International. A total bomb. I don't know how much they spent making that movie. Probably like $200 million. Men in Black television show. Again, talking about the X-Files. You have the Alien of the Week. Procedural. You have the universe set up already in film very well. If you want to expand on that, I think you can... Ex- if you're talking about world building, I think you can just expand a little bit more with 13 hours versus two hours. No question. Yeah. I think the, the here's, I'm going to beat this up one more time. Go ahead. For it to work, 
in episodic TV and ensemble pieces, you have to say, who's the leader of the group? Mm -hmm. And if there's only one that's barely the leader, you're on the right track. If you can't say, Mm -hmm. then you're on to something. Let me ask you a question. In The Hangover, Jesse, Mm -hmm. who's the leader of that group? Bradley Cooper. Only because of star recognition, though, Mm -hmm. not for actions in the film. Right? So that's what I'm getting at. In the Sons of Katie Elder, it's John Wayne, but only because it's John Wayne, not per abilities. Now, Jumanji, which I talked about, obviously is the Rocks film, but only barely. Yeah. Only barely. Mm -hmm. So I'm with you. Yeah. And if you could create, do you want to use our established characters for Men in Black? Or you want to come up with new ones? You could probably do new ones. I think the the the, the appeal to especially this new Men in Black was to just expand the universe overseas with new alien adventures. Do that on television. Why like not? you can do the same thing. Chris Carter's not doing anything. Go direct it, dude. Yeah, exactly. X Files <laughs> yeah. was over a long time ago. X Files was over a long time ago. But I think you know now more than ever. Instead of going the route of the sequel that we're not asking for, I didn't ask for Men in Black International. No, one did. I didn't ask for you know a lot of these sequels that get made. Like I don't think anybody's asking for them, and we see a lot of movies, Matt. Yes, we do. Take that idea, that principle, that universe that they was good in its original format, and just expand on that with the proper medium that television gives you. Throw that on HBO. Throw that on AMC. Throw it on Netflix, Amazon Prime, like. There's a lot of great shows out there, and they're taking advantage of, of that. Can I give you one more that was a possibility for go me, ahead, too? Go ahead, go ahead. We've talked about this a lot. It's the single solitary spot in my what could have been that never was, and it's the Star Chamber. Mm. The Star Chamber, essentially, for those that are unfamiliar with the film, is a bunch of judges who meet uh, at a timely period, and each one of them brings <laughs> Michael a character. Douglas. Michael Douglas, Yafakoto. Uh, they bring... A criminal who beat the rap and they introduce that criminal to the other judges and then they vote on who the worst is and they hire a hitman to go take care of that person. Where could you go with that? Exactly. And especially if one of them or there was a cop that was maybe on to the sort of inner workings of the star chamber and sort of chasing them. So you get you're pulling for them because they're killing or hiring a guy to kill these terrible people, mm-hmm. but outside the jurisdiction of what law is. And as Judiciary Committee members, that's also troubling. Mm-hmm. And now you get a cop or a detective onto it. That that was a close one, too. That You and me someday <laughs> are going to write the Star Chamber. Properly. Properly. <laughs> Where people will go see it. Slam dunk, dude. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this has been fun talking about The Karate Kid. Please seek this film out. Please seek out Cobra Kai mm-hmm. on YouTube Red. Please. Yeah, seek out anything that, you know, other than the derivative sequels and the so-so remake. Even even 2 and 3, there you should probably just still see it. Yeah. 2 is okay. Yeah. But, no, this has been fun. This has been a great cast just kind of going down memory lane of summer. I'd rather talk about these films than the films that are coming out week after week. Like, my God. It seems like you all really like them, too. The numbers for the last three weeks are staggering, and I'm not just saying that. No, it's yeah. truly staggering. Jesse, you want mm-hmm. to go in a little bit about, about that? No, yeah. It's, yeah it, it, Matt and I have been doing this since uh, January, and each month is just we're just gaining followers, gaining so many more downloads, expanding all over the globe, which that boggles my mind. Like, Me, too. How are people finding the show Like in places like, you know, like, 
Bosnia and Istanbul and this and that. Like, <laughs> but I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're enjoying it because that's what this is all about. Enjoying just some fun banter, talking about film, film history, film uh, production history, story elements. I hope there's a lot to like here. I mean, it could certainly help make the day go by faster if that's what you're looking for. I love it when we get the feedback from our listeners when they come up with their list too. Mm-hmm. We try to come up with the flight, and i got to be honest, a lot of that's Jesse for everybody. Most yeah. of the flight and nightcap stuff is Jesse. It's his brilliance. Yeah. These answers that you all come up with that incite discussion yeah. about that, <clears throat> it's almost like our own little version of high fidelity, but everybody's in and we're all the snobs. It's fun. It is fun. To that. Excellent. Cheers to all of that. Cheers to all of that. So next week we got a pretty big film coming up. And Matt, yes, do you sense that? My spider sense is tingling. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. On tap for next week, we have Spider-Man Far From Home. This is... Small batch number two? This is yeah, small batch number two. So we're not going to tie a whole new cask into this. It's just going to be a one-off review, but mm-hmm. a pretty big film to review. Yeah. But according to Kevin Feige, this is the final film in phase three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So this is going to totally close out everything pre-all Thanos, Infinity, whatever. So let's find out if the the quests of the quantum realm have totally screwed up Spider-Man too. <laughs> well, and here's the thing that's going to be really interesting. Yeah. What is that post-credit scene? Mm-hmm. Those have almost become a legacy unto themselves De- in the Marvel definitely. movies. Not almost, they are, aren't they? Uh-huh. Because are we going to get a hint at what's coming and who's going to defend it? I've heard rumors. Because the rumor I heard, I'll just go ahead and say it, mm-hmm. is Norman Osborn. Mm-hmm. Have you heard the same rumor? And we've all heard the rumors about the Sinister Six. I've heard that too. Is that a, is that a big enough baddie for you, Norman Osborn? For Spider Man, yes. For the MCU? entire for Captain Marvel, Black Panther, Doctor Strange, no. Even if they have the Wrecking Crew, <laughs> we talk about the Wrecking Crew so much, and they're so lame. They're so lame. <gasps> That's it. I'm out. Do we got to throw the Enforcers in there and Fancy Dan and the Ox in there as yes, well? Yes, we do. Oh my God. <laughs> but I'm excited. I'm excited to see it. You know, this is going to be the third Spider-Man film we talk about. We've covered a Tobey Maguire. We've covered an Andrew Garfield. So this is our first time to talk about Tom Holland and his iteration. And it's definitely different than traditional Spider-Man, if we can say that. It certainly, yes. Excellent. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers, Spidey. We got to get going. I got to go wax on, wax off a fence in the backyard. What are you doing, Matt? I'm going to go drive this yellow buggy I have out front that's a convertible. (laughs) I need a paint job. I want it black with fire. Excellent. We'll see you next time. Everybody, have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. The Karate Kid is property of Jerry Weintraub Productions, Delphi 2 Productions, and Columbia Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, wax on, wax off. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. No, Sensei.
no mercy.